Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 171. So glad you could join me. Um, today's guest, Joan Kwan Glass, is here. She'll be with us in about 10 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. Uh, we just do this because we love poetry. You know how to do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Click the bell for notifications. Leave reviews on any of the uh, pod-catching apps that you might be listening to this on later. Uh, whatever you can do to help spread poetry or on the internet is greatly appreciated because that is how poetry spreads these days. It's not through uh, books very often, so um, we're happy to spread it here through podcasts. So please do help those push them along. Um, now, as always, we're going to start with a, a poet respond poet, and um, the Sunday poet couldn't be here, so we'll read, uh, read uh, Blank in, in a little bit. But first, we have a preview of tomorrow's poem by our rattle favorite, Francesca Bell. She's here right now. Hey, Francesca, how you doing? I'm fine, thanks, Tim. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to see you again. It's been a little bit, but uh, I love how you're always on the show. I'm looking forward to coming up uh, next year. We're going to have you on with new books. Yes, um, I have two new books coming out. Um, one is a translation. Mm-hmm. So I didn't actually write those poems. I just rendered them into English. Well, just as I, those are some uh, Max Sisner poems, which we had. I think we've published two of them now, right? Max, Max's poems? I think three. Three, yeah. yeah, yeah. So three poems from that book. But yeah, looking forward to that when they come out. Um, do you want to explain what tomorrow's poem is going to be about, those small parts? Uh, so tomorrow's poem was inspired um, by several very strange things that all came together into a poem. Um, and my dog escaped. And um, after that, I read a poem about a foot having been found inside a shoe on a local beach. And um, and it was such an odd article, the tone of it, that somehow that sparked um, me to write this poem. And um, I don't want to give away too much. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and uh, and read it right now. And then, uh, okay. yeah. Okay. Small parts. After the plumbers leave, having installed new toilets because the old ones failed to whisk fully away what our bodies discarded, and we are of an age where we crave the satisfaction of good and final riddance, of never seeing again what we have chosen to set down, the ultimate sweet pleasure of divestment. And after they have accidentally allowed my old beagle to escape, and I walk up and down the streets calling and whistling, and return to find her waiting at the front door, triumphant, a long dead bird's leg bones gripped in her mouth, talons still attached. I read in the paper, that a foot was found on a beach in Richmond, still laced into its saucony shoe. And the article asks breezily for the public's assistance, as if someone has unwittingly lost a right foot, size six or seven, perhaps while out running, before going on to clarify that every couple of months, small parts of people wash up on Bay Area beaches, mostly fingers or feet broken loose at the water's slow insistence from the bodies of suicides who've tossed themselves whole from one bridge or another, dropping as that bird must have, finished finally with the entire enterprise, believing the bay to be as powerful as a new toilet, able to afford a person the simple luxury of washing away 
the whole stinking, burdensome mess. But something keeps keeping us, a scavenging dog, a tide, a faulty toilet, even the bay, unable to stop our little bits, our wasted, torn apart pieces from clinging to shore in refusal. Yeah, beautiful and, and heartbreaking poem, um, Small Parts by Francesca Bell. And so so how did that poem um, come to be? How did you go from the shoe to, to where you took it? Do you have any sense of that? Well, I, I have suicide on my mind um, pretty heavily right now. Mm-hmm. We've grappled in my own family with a lot of trouble with suicidality. And then since February of 2021, um, we've lost four people in our broad circle to suicide. Oh, wow. And the most recent one was just a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. a family member. And so I think suicide was already on my mind. And and I'd been thinking a lot about how much we humans try to let go of things and can't. Um, that's been sort of a theme that has been running through my mind lately, maybe because we're approaching a new year. Mm-hmm. And so somehow all of this sort of came together in my mind. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to say what what a tangled web there is up there. Yeah, definitely. And it, it by coincidence, it happens to be um, the topic of tonight's main guest. Uh, Night Swim is about suicide and recovery, too. So that'll be the, the theme of the show, I guess. But it's such an important issue right now, and so much is going on post-COVID and um, for so many reasons. Um, and, and this poem reminded me of, um, I don't know if you've seen the documentary about the San Francisco Bridge and the jumpers. Um, there's a documentary about that, and it is just... I know it is just um, you know seeing video of people like they're so far out that nobody can get to them in time, but like thinking about it and things like that is just such a heartbreaking thing. And um, yeah, so really important topic. Thanks for sharing this poem, Francesca. And it was a pleasure sharing your work. Thank you so much. Yep. And I can't wait to hear Joan. Yeah, yeah, me too. And and you next year, some point when your books come out. Okay, great. Very cool. Okay. Thanks, Francesca. Good night. Good night. That was Francesca Bell. Um, you can watch her full episode. Um, it was Rattlecast number, I don't even remember. It was pretty early on, like right around 20 or something. I remember there was a fire going on in, um, near Francesca's house, and she was on a backup generator. So it was a pretty eventful <laughs> Rattlecast then. I think it was around number 20 or 18 or something. So go back and check that out if you would. She's a great, great poet. Um, but for now, we're going to take a quick break and go to another great poet. Joan Quan Glass is here. So um, sit tight. I'm going to put up some bumper music, make sure everything's working, and I will be right back in just a moment with uh, today's main guest. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I said, tonight's guest is Joan Quan Glass. She's the mixed-race Korean-American author of Night Swim. She's right here by Diode Editions and three chapbooks. She serves as editor-in-chief for Harvard Review, as a Brooklyn poet's mentor, as a proud Smith College graduate, and has been a public school educator for 20 years. Um, she serves in the faculty of Hudson Valley Writers Center and the Fine Arts Work Center of Provincetown. Um, her work has won a bunch of awards, um, and she's been published all over the place. You can find her at Joan P. Glass on Twitter or JoanKWongGlass.com. Um, she is the current poet lord of Milford, Connecticut, where she lives with her family. And here she is, Joan Quan Glass. Hi, Joan. How are you doing? Hi, Tim. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's a pleasure to read this book. And first of all, I have to say, this is the most beautiful cover. I'll put it on screen. But this is the most beautiful cover of a book I've seen in a long time. Um, 
And in a very touching, heartbreaking book, very similar to Francesca Bell's content-wise, of course, um, the, the topic that it covers, um, heartbreaking book. Um, do you want to start out by reading a poem? I do. And I do need to shout out to the Diode Editions team because they put the cover together. Um, and I just think it turned out to be the perfect cover for the book. And I agree, it is really beautiful. Um, so I'm going to read the title poem called Night Swim. And just to give a, a brief um, introduction to how I wrote the poem. I had read an article about a man, a man trying to escape North Korea who swam through the East Sea um, and ended up making it to South Korea and in diving gear um, and wandered around on land for a couple of hours before he was discovered. And some of the his wandering was caught on camera. And so I was able to see some of that footage and read the article about it. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And this poem, Night Swim, ended up becoming the title poem for the book. Night Swim. In February, a man in flippers and wetsuit swims undetected across the East Sea, along the border of North and South Korea. Once on land, he crawls through a drain beneath barbed wire, walks for miles before being caught. Video footage shows him at 4 a.m. in Gosan village, security tower strobe light flashing out, exposing him. He takes a few steps forward, then teeters back, hesitates confused, afraid, and hypothermic. How many of us have swum through current of grief or shock only to find ourselves disoriented, standing on the shore of a strange country? After loss to suicide, the landscape doesn't change, but everything else does. They don't release the man's name don't show his face, only the back of his body as he staggers forward in the darkness, trying to convince himself, I am home. I am home. And that is Night Swim, the title poem um, to Joan Kwan Glass's uh, newest book from Diet Editions, Night Swim, um, with that beautiful cover. Um, so, so the book is about just really a heartbreaking um, story, a family story. Um, and I wondered if, um, is that what led you to writing poetry in the first place? A lot of people are drawn toward poetry as a way to deal with grief in the first place. It's mm -hmm. a really productive way to do so. And I know I've talked to a lot of poets who something like that happened, and that's what made them start taking poetry really seriously as a way to get through that. Is that the case for you, or are you writing poetry already? I've been writing poetry since I was five years old, um, but I think what happened was after um, after the losses that I had, I lost two close family members to suicide in a very short period of time, um, my sister and my 11-year-old nephew, Frankie. Um, and after that, I think that also coincided with reading uh, a book by Eugenia Lee, who I know you know, and she's... I just adore her and she's one of my favorite poets. Um, and that book really helped me kind of develop the courage to write the poems that are in Night Swim. Um, so I don't know that grief brought me to writing poetry, but this book definitely wouldn't exist 
if if I didn't have a need to write through my grief and to come to understand it, and also if I hadn't read that book and and other books by poets who had experienced similar losses. Yeah. And and that uh, Eugenia Lee was a guest on the Rattlecast in '89. If anybody wants to go back and and talk about that book um, that that you were talking about just now, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And so so how did the book come to be? Like, how did you know that that was a topic that you needed to write about? Well, the 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 first year after uh, I lost my family members, I really didn't write at all. Um, I was dealing with a lot of shock. I was diagnosed with PTSD and just dealing with a lot of nightmares um, and kind of just trying to survive raising my kids, continuing to work um, as a teacher and just really live in the world. Mm-hmm. After those losses, the world looked really different and I didn't feel like the same person. Um, but after that first year, I began writing poems. I wrote a few poems at a time. And then COVID happened and I found myself in my house with my grief um, and needed a place to put it and just started waking up extremely early in the morning and writing before I started teaching on Zoom. Mm -hmm. So the book, um, there was a chapbook that came before this that came out through Small Harbor Publishing, Harbor Editions, called How to Make Pancakes for a Dead Boy. And some of the poems that are in Night Swim were in that book first. Um, and then very soon after, Night Swim was picked up as a full-length collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's hear uh, another poem. Sure. Um, this poem is called First Sunrise, and it's about the first morning um, after learning that I had lost my nephew, that my nephew had died. And I didn't sleep that night, and I actually went to work. Um, to leave sub plans. And I think I was also kind of in shock and I just followed my usual routine. Um, so this is about that experience of, of watching the sun come up on the first day after you've lost someone that you love. First sunrise, 10 hours after he died, I stood at the copy machine with the other teachers, photocopying readings for my substitute. I hadn't told anyone yet. As I held the book down against the glass to scan it, a green laser lit up the room. My hand became an alien hand, the air some exotic otherworldly vapor. But then the math teacher snapped at me for putting the wrong color paper in tray four, and I was still human oxygen filling my lungs. The Spanish teachers chatted in Spanish as students jostled each other in the halls or walked with their heads down. The sun had not yet risen on that first day without him in the world, but it did. It has every day since. Yeah, it was a great poem. It's First Sunrise, again, from Night Swim. And and just such a wonderful ending, um, the understatement there. Um, do you remember how, how you ended up writing to that place at the ending? It has, you know, but the sun, but it did, it, it has every day since. Yeah, that's a really, that's a great question. Because, and, and the answer is that that's just what I lived every day. Um, that first year in particular, I was almost angry when the sun came up. Mm-hmm. 
um, I found myself becoming angry at things that it didn't make sense for me to be angry about. For example, you know, someone would smile at me in the hallway, um, you know, and I would just, I would get this feeling like he's dead. How can you be smiling? Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, just looking for somebody to blame uh, and just wishing that the world kind of reflected the loss and the grief that I was feeling. Um, and a lot of people really identify with this poem. And I think it, it's because it's kind of a universal feeling, you know, of, of how does the world go on when you lose someone that you love so much? Yeah, the book reads um, like a guidebook um, for, for going through this, for, for knowing what the experience would be like, because it goes really it, in very intimate terms through almost chronological order through the five stages of grief as the five sections are. Um, and, and it makes me think about how that seems to be the point of literature is to, to give people experiences so they can be prepared for experiences or know that, that other people have gone through the same thing, to have that human connection. Um, mm -hmm. Did you have a sense that you were writing uh, the poems for, for yourself or for people who are going through the same thing? Or did you think about that at all while you were doing it? Or was it just a, you know, you're, you're a poet, so you make poems and this is what you do? I, I actually really didn't believe that this book would ever be published. Um, not that I felt like a lot of the poems or the book as a whole wasn't worthy of being published, but I, I didn't know what press or what publisher would be open to publishing such a difficult collection because there is very little light in this book. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really just, um, you know, as I was writing it, I wrote whatever the truth was for me at that time, whether it was sadness or rage or not wanting to believe that it was true. I just wrote all of it without really thinking that it would ever be a book um, or a book that anyone would buy. And I also didn't, I didn't know of another poetry collection that um, really could serve as a guide. I Like I had wished that there was something out there. Mm -hmm. And now that I've written the book and I've met other poets who've experienced this and other writers who've experienced it, um, I know that there is work out there. And I've become close with other writers who write about this topic and in community with them. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, I really, it was a very, I don't want to say lonesome experience, but it was, it was a very solitary mm -hmm. experience to write this book. And yeah, so I think that's, that's the answer. I was really stunned when, yeah. when it was Mm -hmm. published yeah i mean it's it's very similar to what uh, taylor molly said because my experience in, in publishing a book like that is his book the wedding stone which is about his uh, wife's suicide and it was the same thing for him it was that he you know needed to write these poems but he had no idea he, he didn't think anybody would publish them and he couldn't put them in any other book that included you know regular topics that weren't this because mm -hmm. it's such a huge topic that once you start talking about this like everything else is sort of seen in contrast to that because it's such a big um, you know, traumatic emotional event. And so, um, yeah, it was tough for him too in the same way. And, um, but I think I'm not familiar with that. I'm not familiar with oh, the yeah. book. I'll have to check it oh, out. We'll, we'll send you a copy. We have, we have enough. We'll send you a copy. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, it's the wedding stone. It's a, the, one of the chapbook prize winners from a few years ago. Um, but yeah, do you want to read another poem? Yeah. 
Um, okay. I'm going to read one more about uh, my nephew and it's called Red Flags. I try to make it a point to read this poem in almost every reading that I do of Night Swim because I think it's important for people to know what I saw and what was observed um, ahead of his suicide. It's called, this is Red Flags. In the video, my sister posted of them singing along to the radio. My nephew looks terrified that his performance will disappoint her. Whenever my kids talked back or sassed me, he shushed them and froze, watched me the way small animals watch predators, as though something was inevitable. He asked his grandmother about heaven twice in one week, specifically whether pain disappears or we carry it with us. Two weeks before he died, he ran away, rode his bike to the diner, sat alone in a booth. He waited for someone to notice he was gone. Yeah, another heartbreaking poem, those red flags from Night Swim by Joan Quan Glass. Um, and, and that's a topic that I definitely wanted to talk about too, because it's, it's I mean, you know, I have two kids that are young, and and the first thought you get is like what you know how because so often it happens you don't know it's so unexpected from from people you know I mean the people I've known who suicided all were you had no idea it was coming mm-hmm. um, and it was really hard to like you know and then you go back and you look at like what were the clues it's so hard to know you know what you know what was there to, that might have warned you and might have helped um, so so what have you learned to to look for just in case anybody knows anybody who might need help. What I've learned, what I've learned to look for um, is just based on my own experience. I mean, I could speak generally as a, as an educator and as a parent too, and just what I've read. Um, But, you know, obviously depression, isolation, I know there's a lot of research that shows that connection is incredibly important. I mean, for human beings in general, but especially for kids. So feeling connected to you know, your family or to close friends or to some sort of a community, whether it's in your school or in the larger community, having a connection to something that gives meaning Mm -hmm. to kind of your daily existence. So even for someone who is depressed and or has mental health issues of some kind, that if there's that connection and someone who's paying attention, um, that that makes a huge difference or having an adult you know, every, I really truly believe that every kid should have an adult that they can tell anything to without being judged or worrying what that person will think about them. Somebody that they can ask for help mm-hmm. if they need it. Yeah. And, and, a, and a corollary to that, do you have any sense, because suicide, especially among teenagers, is increasing really rapidly at a frightening, frightening pace. Do you have any sense of what's causing it? Um, have you, you know, is there any kind of idea of what's happening that's a hard question to answer i think yeah um it probably completely depends on the individual on the family on the situation um i know that you know like a mental health crisis can come on really quickly and it's not something necessarily that can, can be predicted and especially with kids they're changing so much so quickly um 
you know, but I, I just think that there's a lack of connection of true connection um, in this country in particular, you know, we're, we're up there on the list of countries with the highest suicide rates. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other countries that have very high suicide rates are countries where the expectations are incredibly high or the stress and poverty levels are extraordinary, but that's not the case mm-hmm. in the United States. And so there are other factors, you know, I, I see a lack of connection yeah, I mean, it feels we were talking a little bit before the show started with with Francesca too about social media and, and TikTok and and all those things that the uh-huh. kids are using, um, and, and the way that they're just you know young people don't have the same connections as we used to when we were growing up, um, where we had like actual physical you know friends and and lived in the same area and, and did things together in the same room. Yeah. Um, it, it's much more rare, and then, and then you get the whole. Um, you know, the whole glamorous way that people can present themselves and make it seem like everybody else is doing okay and you're not. And maybe that's a factor too. Those are the things that come to mind for me. But but something's definitely, you know, something has to change because it's, it's you know, getting worse and worse, it seems. Agreed. And I, I, I think, you know, something that really does need to change is the way that we handle mental health crises and the support systems that are in place and the availability of resources, I think is huge. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I was a counselor at a group home for mentally ill adults before this job. And, um, and, and just the resources were so scarce then, and they're even less now. And that was 20 years ago. And it was only, you know, certain people who had access to that kind of care. And, uh, and most people didn't. And, and even then the care was really stressed and strained and people were getting burned out mm-hmm. all the time. And, um, there's just not much, you know, mental health isn't treated the same way as, as physical health in this country either, which is another big problem. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, let's continue uh, with more poems. Uh, what do you want to read next? Okay. Um, so I'm going to move on to some poems that include my sister. Two months after my nephew Frankie died, my sister took her life. Um, and in the beginning you know, the first couple of years, they, they both passed away in 2017. The first couple of years, I didn't feel much more that I could identify other than anger. Um, I was angry at her for leaving. I was angry that I hadn't been able to do something more than what I did. I lived very far away from them. They were in Michigan and I was in Connecticut. I was just angry at everything and everyone. Um, And when my sister passed away, she left a journal behind that the police gave to me along with um, other things. And I just refused to open it. And it was sort of my way of being mad at her, like the way that siblings are, you know, like sisters can hold a grudge. And I could imagine her doing the same exact thing to me. We just had that type of a relationship. Um, So I wrote, You know, when I was writing Night Swim, my editor told me that she felt like there were some poems that were missing. And we tried to work through what those poems were. Um, And so this is the last poem that I wrote for Night Swim. And it came from reading the police reports, reading the journal, looking at the crime scene photo, crime crime scene photos for the first time. Um, This is called Elegy for my sister's journal. It's on page 29. When the policeman handed me your journal in the evidence bag, I left it there unread. 
claiming some small victory and refusing your final words. And when the psychic at a party claimed to have a message for me from you, I shook my head and said, no, thank you. A year after your death, I awoke to your fist, urgent, banging against my bedroom door. I could have opened it, could have given you the chance to unburden yourself. Maybe after I listened, you would finally have left me alone. The truth is, all of this could just be my strange way of taking a stand. My sister is gone and no ghost can take her place. Can you see me here writing this poem, brooding in our childhood bedroom, stuffed animals smiling stupidly from the dresser? I'm staring unblinking at the scorched doors the way a child does when sulking. Keep your journal and your fist Instead, give me the bag in which you took your last breath, the film that lifted away from your cheeks, cheeks I once compared to winter apples. Give me the last thing you laid eyes on, vase of fake flowers on the nightstand, your daughter's photo on your home screen, the window sealed shut from the inside. That was Elegy from My Sister's Journal uh, from Night Swim once again, which we're reading by John, Joan Kwan Glass. Um, so, so how do you go about um, writing poems like these when, when they're so intensely personal and you have to you know, find a way to connect with, with the reader um, and engage in that way and, and share them in a container that, that can be transferred to somebody else? Do, do you have any way of, of approaching that um, you know, with the reader in mind of, of taking us on a journey. Um, how, do you, how do you go about writing a poem when, when it's so personal and, and, and making mm-hmm. it you know, public and, and something to be shared as well? I mean, it's definitely, this type of loss is definitely very personal and it's very specific, but grief is not and being human is not and being angry when people think that you shouldn't be angry. That's a very human experience, you know? And um, something I do try to ask myself when I'm writing is why does this poem need to exist? Mm -hmm. Um, Or why does this poem deserve to exist? So I think by asking myself those questions and also asking myself what the truth is for me, Mm-hmm. And whether the poem that I'm writing, you know, does this line really speak the truth, my truth, in the way that I want it to and the way that I intend it to? Um, you know, that's been an effective strategy for me. Mm-hmm. And also, I've just kind of my personality is to sort of not care what people think. And that's that's been a problem for me a lot of my life uh-huh. personally. But in terms of writing, I think that it's been helpful because I, I'm not, I'm really trying not to use a filter mm-hmm. and it, it's not difficult for me. Um, and I, I think also in the back of my mind, why a lot of these poems um, worked well is because I really didn't think 
they were going to appear in a book. Um, so other than just trying to be human and not use a filter, you know, I don't really know that there's any other answer. Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking of that, of, um, um, you know, not realizing the poems would be published. Did you, how is your, your family's reaction been? Is that something you worried about before the poem would come out? Cause there are things that are very, um, you know, just very honest in a way that, that might upset people. Um, did mm-hmm. you have any reservations for publishing the book in the first place once it was accepted and you had that, you know, I've had people um, many times at Rattle actually, you know, I'll we'll accept a poem and then they'll say, Oh, you know what? Maybe not. May, I don't know. I don't think. And if, if anybody's having those kind of doubts, I say, well, you know, yeah, I guess we shouldn't if you're having that kind of doubts about the poem. Um, did you have any feeling like that? Or did you, you know, what was your, and, and what's your family's response been to it for the people who, who know uh, your nephew and sister? Um, it's been mixed, mostly supportive. I've had some people that have been really upset by it. Um, and I try to remember that they're also human. Of course, I was upset that they were upset and I was hurt and, you know, we don't speak anymore. Um, but that's okay. I'm okay with that because just like they're experiencing the truth, the way that they experience it, this is the truth for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't know how to be any other way, how to write any other way or exist any other way, really. Um, and in terms of family, I mean, are you even a poet if you don't have family that gets pissed off at you? I, I, I don't know. I, I did try. I have tried hard to shield my mother. Uh, my mother has not read my books. Uh, she's read a few of the poems that I've shared with her from the books, but I didn't write any of this to hurt her or to hurt anyone else. And it's been interesting Um reading the poems now as opposed to when I wrote them four years ago, three, four years ago, because I'm not angry anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't blame anyone anymore, but I had to go for myself. I, I just had to go through that for whatever reasons. That's where I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to get to today, I had to experience that. And so I'm okay with it, you know, and, I'm really lucky in that my mother understands that also. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you think, I mean, you mentioned um, how important truth is to, um, you know, your, your process and, and whether a poem deserves to exist. I love that by the way. And our critique of the week, we always say, um, does this poem have a reason to exist? But I like, a, does, mm-hmm. is it, is it worth existing or, or how are you put it? I have to look back, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, there's more to it than just, um, is it worth it? Does it deserve existing? I like that. Um, but do you find that, that you find truth in the process of writing? Is that part of what what drove you to wrote, write the poems? Absolutely. I had no idea most of the time what the truth was for me until I started writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of came out line by line. Or I had, you know, I, I would have an idea for a feeling that I wanted to convey or an image that stuck with me that I knew was worthy of a poem, but I didn't know how it was all going to come together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's hear another poem. Sure. Um, I'm going to read What I Regret, which is on page 42. This was originally published in Diode and 
you know, once again, a very human experience of looking back on your last experiences, you know, your last summer vacation, your last Christmas uh, with the person that you've lost and what you wish that you had done differently. But the thing is about regret, if you had done those things, it wouldn't have made sense at the time. So, you know, regret is is obviously is a very retrospective feeling, but in some ways it doesn't make sense to regret. Um, anyway, this is this is what I regret on page 42. Every summer we spent a week at the lake. You and your cousins caught turtles and minnows before dinner and they squatted enraptured over the creatures you'd found. They stroked the turtles' backs, picked them up when they wandered too far. When they stuck their whole hands in the bucket, giggling as the fish flurried through their fingers, you turned to me and said quietly, maybe we should set them free. On movie nights, you held a bag of M&Ms open on your lap and waited as your cousins took forever to get settled. They bickered about which pillows they needed, what spot on the couch they'd claimed, who had a bigger scoop of ice cream in their bowl, how it wasn't fair, and could they have more? You never asked for more of anything not even when your life depended on it. I should have filled your arms with a blooming bushel of your favorite candy, found you a spot close to me on the couch and asked you what movie made you the happiest. I should have summoned a thousand turtles just so you could let them go. That last Christmas of your life, all I gave you was an Amazon gift card. I should have asked, what do you dream of holding? Before it's too late, tell me what your heart wants. Yeah, it's a heartbreaking poem. Um, what I Regret from Night Swim by Joan Kwan Glass. Um, if anybody has any questions for Joan, please do uh, pass them along on Facebook or YouTube. I'm watching them both, and I will pass along any questions that you have. Well, we do have one poem request for later, which maybe I'll, I'll ask. Um, Kashyana Singh, by the way, wants uh, um, questions for my mother. It is a request from Kashyana Singh, if you'd like, to, if you don't mind reading that at some point okay. later. Um, um, Nate Jacob asked a question. Um, in dealing with such a personal and intense experience, how closely to actual events do you tend to stick? Is it just the facts, or is it acceptable to embellish in order to complete the message? Um, mm. you, know, you know, the truth and poetry discussion he mentions. But, but yeah, I mean, I always think there's like a deeper truth to the facts or something like that. But how do you how do you con you know think of that? These poems were pretty concrete, um, and I think. One of the reasons that they were concrete and that they were, I mean, I, I don't know if I can say that everything is factual because it's the way that I remember things, you know, so someone else may remember something very differently, but these are my memories and my experiences. Um, so in this book, I did try to write kind of a testimony or a testament to what I experienced and what I remember and what I observed and witnessed. 
but other poems, you know, I definitely have done that. Like I can share an example. There's a poem um, in Chestnut Review that I recently published called Last Communion. And at the end, I refer to a priest um, because I was trying to make a certain point with the line. Um, but I actually grew up in an evangelical church. So sometimes language or visuals, you know, in order to get a desired effect, I might change things for that reason. But I don't tend to to invent things. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of not how I write. Yeah. <clears throat> um, let, let's talk about your, your philosophy on poetry in general a little bit more. Because um, you are the editor of um, Harbor Review or, or, or poetry editor um, of Harbor Review. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what your title is. Uh, yeah. Yeah, editor in chief of Harvard. Editor in chief. Yeah. There you go, um, <laughs> and, and you've done other things, projects similar, I think, too. Um, so, so what is your what is your conception of what a good poem does? Like, what is the the you know how do you go about writing a poem? Um, how do you consider you know the line breaks and the and the pacing? Like, what do you what do you consider as a poem to be finished? How do you how do you go about it? Oh my gosh, what a question. <laughs> um. So here's here's an interesting fact about me. I have never taken a formal poetry class. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when I'm asked that question, it almost makes me chuckle because I am not like a professional poet by any means. Um, I don't even know some of the terminology or like names of forms and structures and things. I'll have to look them up sometimes when people mention them to me. Mm -hmm. um, but I can say, you know, if I were to define a good poem, I I often use the expression that like this poem rearranged my brain. Mm. Uh, so poems that I remember, you know, months, years later, or poems that I refer back to as inspiration mm -hmm. or wanting to teach them for any particular reason, um, but mostly it's like, I want to be challenged. I want to be challenged in terms of my perspective. I want to be challenged emotionally. Um, I really love it when an image rocks my world, you know, like stands out to me and is unexpected in a poem. And in terms of line breaks and things like that, I probably the, the thing that I like using the most is enjambment. Um, and for me, I like to end a line thinking, okay, I want the person who's reading this poem to wonder what's going to come next. You know, so ending or doing the line break, building the line break in, um, I guess, as a point of tension. Mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned, uh, you know, poems, a good poem will scramble your brain. Do you remember the first poem that scrambled your brain? Is there any kind of first poem, first scramble? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't, I don't have any idea. <laughs> first poem that scrambled my brain. Um, probably the first poems I loved as an adult reader were like Mary Oliver, um, Billy Collins. This is like way back in my twenties, Margaret Atwood. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I don't remember the first, the first poem. 
I'm 46 years old. I don't remember a lot of <laughs> no, first I hear things. You. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, um, do you remember though the first poem that that you were surprised where your own brain was scrambling? Because that's the fun of a you know writing as a poet when you get to scramble mm. your own brain. I think right. Was there? Mm. A, I mean, for me, I there is a first poem where I was writing as a as a freshman in James Longenbach's class, and there was a poem that, and I wasn't even taking poetry seriously, but there was a poem. And I was like, whoa! Like I didn't know I thought that. That's <laughs> strange. And, uh, and, and I don't know those two things were connected, but there they are, and they're connected. Did, did you have an experience like that in the process of writing? Like, it, and it feels like that was my first poem, even though I'd been writing poems, you know, for, through high school for fun and stuff. It, it felt like that was the first real one. Did, do you have any sense of that, of, of the, the first time something connected and surprised you? I don't know if it was the first time, but one that stands out in my mind is the probably the first and only pantoum that I've ever written I really struggle with using formal like writing formal poems um I'm kind of obsessed with the way that Dorothy Chan writes triple sonnets like she just uses structure so brilliantly and I don't feel like I do that very well so I I took a pantoum class with Taylor Baez one day and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Like I am going to effectively use form. Mm -hmm. And I ended up writing a poem that had been forming in my mind for probably 30 years, oh, wow. but I, I couldn't, I had never found a way to get it down on paper because the feelings behind it were so complicated for me. Mm -hmm. And that's the pantoum that I wrote. Um, and it's to this day, the only pantoum I've ever written, but, uh, people really identify with it. And when I talk about the poem, I like to talk about how I do believe like there's some magic, there can be some magic in using form because certain poems are almost waiting for the right form yeah. to appear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good way to put it too. Um, so there's a question here from Dick Westheimer. He says, uh, Tim talks a lot about poems as healing, not therapeutic so much as the process of making one whole again. Um, did you experience this in the, in the process of writing the book? I did not. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I actually feel like I experienced a breaking down while writing the book. Kind of, um, I tend to be a pretty guarded person emotionally and me writing these poems was a process of like breaking down those barriers within myself kind of like moving the mountains that I didn't even know were there mm -hmm. um being able to name them being able to navigate them and I think since the book was published almost a year ago now um since the book was published, I've begun to heal, but I feel like I'm in, in the very early stages of that just because of who I am as a person, yeah. mm -hmm. um, not wanting to delve into things emotionally. Like the writing was, was the writing, you know, the writing was, I, that's what I do. I'm a writer. I write. It was, you know, that I had these experiences, they were horrific experiences, um, even after writing books about them, I don't know that I'll ever fully emotionally um, 
or know, understand my own emotions mm -hmm. fully. So I, I hope to continue healing and to keep kind of learning about um, what that even means, you know, what, what it even means to recover from losing your only sibling and, um, a, you know, a nephew so young mm -hmm. to suicide. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm going to stick around and find out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're glad you are. Uh, let's hear another poem. see if I can find questions for my mother. Okay, so hi, Kashiana. Thank you for being here. Um, I have such a hard time with this poem. <laughs> I feel, I think if there is any poem in this book that I feel badly for having written, it's this poem. Mm -hmm. But once again, I don't really believe in, I, I just think that regret is like a weird emotion because by writing this poem, I was able to get to the other side of the questions, you know, not in terms of now I have the answers, but I was able to get through the anger um, and just come to understand that sometimes there are no reasons. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's the answer. So this is questions for my mother. I want to ask, when he questioned you about heaven, why did you choose angels? You could have pointed to the tulips opening. Why didn't you call for help as soon as you heard the gunshot? I mean, how can a gunshot in the next room sound like anything other than a gunshot? What if we'd written his obituary to say who he might have been, and instead of naming his survivors, listed those who failed him? How can you still spend every Sunday reading those stories about men who give up their firstborn to prove their love for God? Instead, I ask, why do you keep buying orange juice for my children when it has so much sugar? Their adult teeth have grown in already. They still have their whole lives ahead of them. Yeah, and that was um, questions for my mother from uh, Night Swim by June Kwan Glass. Um, so you say that's the most difficult poem um, to, to look back at now. Um, do you... Um, you know, would you usually read that at a reading? And how do you feel like reading a poem like that that you, you know, you feel that way about? I stopped reading that poem, mm -hmm. actually. Um, I was in a reading with Kashiana, and I think that I read that poem. And it's, I love that she's listening to this. And I love that she asked me to read it because it's a really great reminder to me of what a process grief is and how you can be on multiple sides of it if you just stay in the process. Mm -hmm. um, so I did stop reading it because it felt like an angry poem to me. But what's also interesting is reading it today, I'm not reading it as an angry poem. It feels, it feels softer. And so I read it more softly and it feels, just feels sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you feel like... Um, 
you know, given that it's so difficult to write this and you're still working through the healing, are you ha- are you glad that you wrote this book? I mean, it's it's such a difficult mm. subject, um, you know, and, and there's some of the things that you regret that are in there, or not regret, but, but you know, that you feel bad about. Um, mm-hmm. do, you, do you feel like it was a good thing to do to write this book? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the reason, there are so many reasons for it. Um, one of them is a really selfish reason. I have met more survivors of suicide loss than I even knew existed. I mean, I knew statistically that they existed, but I've I've developed these friendships um, and relationships with other writers who've also lost people to suicide and have also written poems or books about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just feeling like we are a community when before i wrote the book it was a solitary experience not that there weren't people i sh- i didn't share the grief with because um there are people you know my sisters uh, some of her close friends um some family members that i won't mention by name but um you know they I've shared in their grief and we've all grieved differently. You know, losing a child is different from losing a nephew and losing a sister is different from losing a daughter. And I actually live with my mother now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't regret it. I, I think, you know, I got so much validation in terms of people reading the book and reaching out to me and just knowing that um you know i've been able to pay tribute to the lives of these two people that i loved and even as angry as i was with my sister for the first couple of years um i feel like she would understand mm-hmm. you know we we had some similarities in that way yeah so i i don't regret it i'm really i'm proud of this book and I'm proud of the press that chose it. I think it was the perfect place for it to land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful and important book. And there's a there's an epigram at the beginning just to you know show the scale of this. Every year in the United States, more than 45,000 people take their own lives. Um, every one of these deaths leaves an estimated six or more suicide survivors, people who've lost someone they care about deeply and are left with their grief and struggle to understand why it happened. And so, I mean, you know, we're talking about every year, you know, 250 million people, um, you know, dealing with this topic um, and, and increasing every year. So it's such an important topic to talk about. Have you been able to, to branch outside of poetry circles? You know, that's one problem we have with poetry is that po- people who love <laughs> poems love poems. Um, but a book like this can be so important for people who have never read a poem since high school, you know? Is, is there anything you've been able to do to get this book in the hands or the ears of um, of people who, who don't usually read poetry but could use this uh, this book and, and the message? I don't know. I mean, it's possible that I have. I, I'm not sure. I, I wrote a grant. Um, I was a recipient of a state grant uh, called Artists Respond Through the State of Connecticut, and through that, I was able to put together community events. Um, and a couple of the events focused on suicide prevention or you know, survivors of suicide loss. And so I did meet people that way. And I think just bringing a general awareness to every time that you do a reading, 
sometimes it's friends that come most of the time it's other poets um but i think the more that we write and the more that we can share about it the more awareness there is and just giving a voice to this entire you know i call us an invisible tribe or invisible kith um that we were always there but we were quiet you know we all kind of grieved privately i think also because people don't want to hear about it mm -hmm. you know it's it's horrible to think about losing someone that you love to suicide no one wants to think about that and neither do we <laughs> mm -hmm. you know but i think you know just having having that kind of community and and being more vocal about it whether it's poets or just you know ordinary people in the community i hope that it reaches more people than just writers yeah well one thing i do know for sure is that it reaches more people than we think uh, because i mm -hmm. you know with michael mark's chapbook about um his uh, dealing with his mother's dementia uh, for example um, we had so many orders in the fall from people who are subscribers so they already have a copy mm -hmm. sending it to somebody else and so when you know when usually you know i have access to the whole database so i know who already has the book and is sending a copy but normally you don't and so um the number of people who sent it to somebody is a way to just even reach out and, and make a connection to say like, you know, I know, you know, I know you're going through this and, and this book might help is probably a big thing that's probably happened a lot and done a lot of good. Mm. Yeah, I, I read that. I, re I received that in the mail and, and I read like half of it so far. Yeah. And I know that's that's caring for someone who's elderly and is something that isn't written about a lot either, like that whole process, because it's difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit before we go about um, Harbor Review, where you're editor in chief. Um, sure. Yeah. So, so what was it like? Um, what is the the position of Harbor Review? Why why does it exist, and what does it do, and and what do you look for in in writing when people send you, and is it just poems or is it stories too? Um, Harbor Review is a poetry magazine. We also um, accept art, and it's a feminist magazine. Um, we try to represent a diverse array of writers. Um, and Allison Blevins, who is the director of Small Harbor Publishing, is the, the founder. Um, she does more than like anybody I know in terms of projects. I don't know how. And she also is like raising a family. And um, my first chapbook, How to Make Pancakes for a Dead Boy, was published through Harbor Editions. And Allison chose it for publication. So that's how we we got to know each other. And she invited me to step in um, as editor-in-chief. So I'm still pretty new to it. I still feel like I'm like editor-in-chief in training. You know, I have to ask a ton of questions and rely on other people to help me figure things out. Um, but it's that? an... How long have you been doing it? Oh, this is, I think six months less than six months yeah. so you know really still learning but it's really it's an incredible team of editors and something i've learned over these last several months is how much work people do uh -huh. like how many hours are spent and it's all volunteer nobody is getting paid to do anything and i know that people you know when you pay that three dollar submission fee you're like I paid the $3, like this should happen, that should happen, this should happen. But behind the scenes, it's incredible 
how much free labor people are giving, you know, just be, it's a labor of love. We, we do it because we love it and because we also want to contribute to the literary community. But I really didn't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea how much work it is, you know, for everybody on the team. But then some the people who do the most work are the ones often behind the scenes too. It's not me. You know, it's the poetry editors, it's the readers, um, it's our managing editor who, you know, without her, I don't know, it, I don't know what we would do. Um, but yeah, so that's what I've learned. And and the mission is, you know, it's it's to gather the most powerful poetry that we receive and make sure that we are representing um, diverse authors, diverse poets, and you know, with a feminist mission. And and have you learned anything about like what works in a poem or what doesn't that, that you might apply to your own work? Is there something you see in like submissions or, or poems you've read that uh, that give you a different perspective on writing? Just that I feel like I will always never be able to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know how to explain that. It's and I'm sure you've experienced this, that when you read a poem you get chills or something happens in your chest or your gut, you know, that there's, there's some magic in a powerful poem that I don't know that any of us could really explain. We can talk about use of imagery and line breaks and, you know, effective use of form and all of those things that people talk about. But I also think that poet's voice is something that's difficult to nail down Mm -hmm. or difficult to concretize, you know, or describe in any kind of way. It's, um, you know, I've read some poets who their voice is just so unique and so important that I feel like the words kind of fall around the voice. Mm -hmm. Um, And that doesn't even make any sense because (laughs) we have to choose the words. But Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I've just learned to, I think, stay open to continue staying open to the magic yeah. of poetry um, and always, yeah, just look for that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and remain remain surprised. Yeah. And th- th- I'm glad you brought up that because I wanted to ask about your voice in the poems, uh, because there's such a consistency to the voice. It's one of the things that stands out, too. And I was wondering if, you know, because people always talk about that, about about what a poet's voice is and, and how you know how to develop a voice. It's such a, a mysterious thing, like you mentioned. Did you ever have a sense that you didn't have your voice? Because this book, which is in the poems I've read that we published, they're all, they're all personal and feel like you speaking in a very authentic, clear way. Um, was there ever a time when you had trouble, like struggled to find a voice? And how did you find your own voice? Is there any kind of any story to that? Or, or have you always felt um, that way that you just wrote authentically and ran with it? Well, look, I've I've sometimes looked back at my older poems. Um, and even the poems from my last chapbook, which the title poem was published in Rattle, If Russ Can Grow on the Moon. And that was published with Milk and Cake Press. It's all about addiction and recovery. And I feel like my voice in those poems is very different than the other books. Um, So for me, sometimes the topic changes 
um, you know, changes my voice, but it is very conversational. Mm-hmm. You know, I do, I do like there to be a flow. I like to use commas because I like to be able to tell people where they should pause. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I know personally, I have a harder time with poems that don't suggest that that doesn't mean that there aren't fantastic poems that don't, but, um, I'm more comfortable kind of writing the way that you would almost speak in a, in a well-crafted sentence, mm-hmm. you know, as you were speaking. Um, so for me, it's, that's important for the flow of a poem is, is this something that if I were to say it out loud, that someone would be able to hear it, um, that it would be rhythmic and that it would be understood. Yeah. So given that, do you, um, do you read your poems out loud as you're writing? Like as you're, you know, you, you draft a bit, do you read it out loud to feel if it feels authentic? Is that a part of your process? I don't, I read it in my head. So I am a little bit weird about, um, like about listening to things. Like I, hate talking on the phone. Mm -hmm. I hate leaving voicemails. Um, I prefer like writing things, but what happens is if I write something, I speak, I say it in my head. I don't ever actually say it out loud, but I think that's just a quirk because I'm, I'm a very quiet introverted person Mm -hmm. that's really sensitive to sound. So I remember when I first started going to readings, and reading my poems, I had such a hard time mm. reading them out loud. And one of my first public readings was at Wednesday Night Poetry, uh, which is run by my dear friend, like beloved friend, Kai Coggin. And she almost did some coaching, like, mm. you know, because I recorded this poem for her. And I was like, this, this sucks. Like, I can't, I don't know how to do this. I know that I sound like a robot. I know my face looks very robotic, and I, but I don't know how to change it. Um, and she's helped me a lot. And then and practice mm-hmm. too, you know, just practicing. And when you do these over and over, it becomes a little easier. Yeah. So that's really interesting because you wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have guessed. I don't think anybody would have that that you don't enjoy reading the poems uh, out loud and, and haven't, you know, for forever. So um, it all feels very natural. Um, well, we are just about out of time. Do you want to finish out with one last poem? Sure. Let's see. Um, I'm going to read. I haven't read this one in a while. Um, but this, my my family is Korean. Um, I spent a lot of my childhood in South Korea and a lot of, some of that time on Jeju Island, um, which is kind of like a holiday island now, but it has a very long history in Korea. And so this is about it's about um, the power in being able to see versions of the person that you've lost, who you love, um, and that sometimes that can bring comfort. This is called, I Ask the Pearl Diver to Bring You Back from the Dead. The Henya waddles toward the Jeju coast in her flippers and wetsuit armor, adjusts her diving mask flashes me the peace sign and takes the plunge. In the meantime, the other divers start a fire on the beach. They squat and warm their hands as I pace and try to catch a glimpse of you 
breaking the water's surface. One of them calls me over to share her abalone. Another tries to distract me with the baby octopus that squirms in her hand, writhes as though about to transform. Soon the henyo calls my name, waves in victory, and there you are. Not the sad, quiet child I remember, but muscular and lean with darker hair, a man of 25 with a brave face and playful eyes. You swim toward me, race the henyal, and she gives you a run for your money. You look up at me like a field of canola opening in the sun. When you pull yourself up onto the rocks, I embrace your glossy body and weep the way I did when you were born. The stilled volcano, volcano at Halasan rumbles. I whisper, how long do we have to no one in particular? The other Hanyo applaud and chant your name, mostly for our benefit. They see this all the time the creatures that grief pulls from deep, airless places, offering bright, wild treasures, even a version of the dead we are desperate to meet. Ribbons of seaweed blossom at our feet, and nearby mollusks spin sand into pearls. Every darkness we bear hides such small mercies. Yeah, a beautiful poem to end the, the book on and the Rattlecast on. That's the last poem from Night Swim um, by Joan Kwan Glass. Joan, thank you so much for being a guest. Um, a really important work and uh, really touching, uh, moving to read. Um, I you know, read straight through the whole thing without putting it down. Um, thanks so much for sharing that and for, for you know, going through and giving people who uh, have similar experiences um, some sense of comfort and, and knowing that they're not alone. Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, good night. That was Joan Kwan Glass. Again, uh, the book was Night Swim, uh, which you can buy from Diode Editions. Um, and you can find more of Joan's work at her website, which is joanquanglass.com. That's J-O-N-K-W-O-N Glass, G-L-A-S-S.com. Um, find more. Find this book and all three of her chat books there. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to the open line, so I hope everybody sent or saved a poem. Um, if you'd like to share a poem, how you do that is you go to open mic, that's open M-I-C at rattle.com, email your poem there, and then I can show it on the screen as I was for Joan and for uh, Francesca's poems before, and then find the Zoom link, which I'm about to deploy, and I copy the Zoom link here and uh, paste it into the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube, and you can follow us along there. But do send your poem first. Don't forget to send your poem. If you only want to listen, though, and you don't want to share poems, you just want to keep enjoying them, sit right where you are, either on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter, and uh, or later, and uh, just listen there because it's the best place. So don't join the Zoom unless you have a poem to share. Okay, so uh, I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll be right back with more poems. And 
we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. The uh, prompt for this week, which was given by Rick Lupert, last week's guest, so I have to say this in Rick Lupert's voice, um, was, I have a writing prompt called I Will Die on This Hill, uh, which I thought up in the shower in Maryland a couple days ago. The idea is to either write a list poem of choices, each line choice ending with the line, and I will die on this hill. Could be funny, like a bar of soap is better than any kind of body wash, and I will die on this hill. Uh, Or heavier things. Another option is to write a longer poem detailing a choice which ends with the line. So that was the prompt for this week, the I will die on this hill prompt by Rick Lupert. Um, So I did not get a chance to write a poem this week. Very busy week. and uh, But let's see what you have. Um, We have... uh, so far, uh, six people have joined us, so uh, I think we might have time for two if you want to share two poems. But like always, you can share poems um, about current events if you have any Poets Respond poems you'd like to share. You can also show po- share poems um, um, from the prompt, or you can share poems you published recently and are proud of, and you can give me a link. I can show off them on their uh, webpage if they have one. Always fun to share different poetry journals. So uh, whatever you'd like to share, please do join us on Zoom if you got something to share. It's always a lot of fun. So first, uh, let's go to uh, Dick Westheimer. Hey, Dick, how you doing? Oh, there we go. <laughs> I'm almost ready for you. That's how I'm doing. I haven't quite brought up my uh, uh, second poem yet. Once you, once you said two, so uh, yeah, I think we got time for two. It's an early. We don't have any extra guests. A bonus round today, so uh, I think we we have plenty of time if anybody wants to hear two, as long as they're not like eight pages, of course. I should right. say yeah. there's always there's always a catch. And the well, catch I do is... have a question. Have, have you ever seen an eight page poem from me? And the answer is never. No, so. never. I think two two page max is uh, is Dick's with, with, with skinny lines. Yeah. Uh, that was such such a moving interview. I mean, I, I my guess is is that everybody more people than we know, and you know, as, mm-hmm. as John said, you know, as soon as you are touched by suicide or by serious mental illness and, you know, proximity to you, you realize that the fraternity or sorority is, is almost uh, immeasurably large. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fraternity or sorority of people who are willing to talk as beautifully about it as, as Joan did is too small. Yeah. Yeah. Very small. I mean, there's some of that in, in my family and, and no one ever talks about it, like, you know, dating way back. Um, no, so, no, yeah, yeah, and we should talk to our kids about it if it's in our families for sure. Yeah, uh, we definitely should. Yeah, well, um, so I did, I did, I did a, a Tim Green. I did a very quick ah. uh, prompt poem, which <laughs> I did email to you. Yeah, well, I didn't yeah. even do that because our uh, our water heater stopped working, so I had to kind of deal with that right before the show. <laughs> and that was right. what, uh, to be honest, that is what uh, messed up. The, uh, the 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 ten minute before the show, poem oh. time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'll I'll read my prompt poem, and then if if I have time to fish out the second poem, I'll I'll uh, do it. It's, it's a it would be a poet's respond poem. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, I sent it to you uh, just a few minutes ago. Is it untitled? It is currently untitled. Okay. Well, let's Not suggest untitled. we can all suggest a title for you too as you as we read. <laughs> That'll that'll be great. A one-word one, an absurd one, and a... Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Untitled. I was just beginning to wonder... Oh, so I just couldn't do the Rick Lipper thing. So I thought about his line, mm-hmm. and this is what came. I mean, Rick can do Rick. Maybe the rest of you can. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm very curious to see what people can do, but let's hear it. 
I was just beginning to wonder if we were mortal after three weeks in the desert, boots worn smooth from slick rock, from slipping on scree and sandstone, our skin wind burnt, bruised by falls and badged by black thighs, needed relief. I planned one last hike into the cool heights, where, one last hike into the cool heights where the sun soothed and was refuge rather than something to evade. So we drove through pine and aspen groves painted green and white on the valleys and rising mountainsides to the trailhead. From there to treeline, we five, daughter, daughter, son, wife, and me walked silent, so relieved, so sweet with the perfume of sap. There we spied the peak, still miles away across saddle and snowpack. We dropped our russets, bundled on our fleeces, set off. At 12,000 feet, we seemed no closer. I couldn't breathe deeply enough to go on and thought, I will die on this hill. There's the line. Yeah. As the others, lost in their own worlds, trudged on, oblivious. I curled up small, my back to the wind that whipped down the slope, sought shelter, leeward of a lichen-covered rock, and was okay waiting forever for their return. I love the ending. And, and yeah, the, I love the, uh, the way that the prompt inspired that memory. Um, that is great, great last couple lines there. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Dick. And then uh, can you find the other one or do you want to swing back to you later? Why don't you swing back to me later? So yeah, I don't hold yeah, we'll do. Let's go next to, um, um, it says Ann VW. I haven't figured out who that is yet. Hey, yeah, there? that's yeah. me. Hi. hi, yes. Yeah, hi. Greetings from the Philippines. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Ah, there we go. And uh, yeah. uh, Widgerden. Widgerden. Yeah, right? I'm married to I'm married to a Dutch guy, so that's my impronounceable name, <laughs> unpronounceable name. I, even I can't say it so, <laughs> properly. Okay. Well, great. Well, I'm so glad you could join us. Um, and yeah. uh, and you're calling from uh, where was it? You said Indonesia. Yeah, uh, near Manila in uh -huh. the Philippines. Yeah, ah, excellent. And, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is my, um, so yeah, like the, I cannot possibly mimic, uh, Nick, um, Nick the last time. So, uh, this is my version and it's not funny either. Sorry, <laughs> but it reflects, it reflects, uh, it was, it was such a great prompt and, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't even planning to respond, <laughs> but I was busy with something. And before I could stop myself, um, mm -hmm. it, um, raised all kinds of images in my mind so this is the the result excellent yeah i'm so glad you did here he is and then the title appropriately enough is and i will die on this hill yeah let's yeah. hear it okay and i will die on this hill a hill to die on it was but a burial mound filled with a truth kept secret from myself buried within unholy sediments five decades deep though for three and a half i have felt the poison self-desiccating in the stranglehold of blackened roots. One podcast spaded out one hole, exposing cavern and my decomposing body of what could have been. This grief, this outrage, this not letting go, this time, this hill, the hill I will die on. Oh, that's great. Love that ending too. I guess maybe this prompt, um, dying on a hill makes, makes people come up with great endings. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you sent some other poems too. Do you want to share um, one or two of these? 
Yeah, which would you? Uh, there's a long. There's one of two pages, and there's a short one. Yeah, I think we have time. We could do page. both. Why not? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Why not? Yeah. Okay. Just three poems from from Anne. <laughs> <laughs> so this one uh, is uh, written also very recently. Mm -hmm. um, on a few months ago, we traveled back to the Philippines from the Netherlands. So I'm kind of anticipating reverse culture shock because we live in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a, it's a kind of serious, humorous. Just anyone on a long haul who's experienced long haul flights, hopefully, mm -hmm. will recognize this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's called In Between Spaces. Amsterdam, Doha, Manila. Bladder, blood, and bones. A question of circulation of movement in this suspended space, this airborne interim, a blessing in need of curation, of frequent mini trips, frequent untangling from wires, from seatbelt then hoisting yourself over armrest into aisle, heading afterwards, and with any luck, no loo line awaits. Finally, a much-anticipated trolley parks at our row. I have hunger, I have food, I will make this work. Marveling at humanity's capacity to operate in small, spa small spaces, if sufficiently motivated. I'm set a wondering how on earth my fellow passengers manage, should they be ganglier or bulkier than I, or accompanied by small children? Now I focus, elbows tucked in, every millimeter of tray space appropriated, attack, ice cold cutlery wrapped tight in a white indestructible paper napkin, blueberry globule assists atop a button on my husband's shirt, a badge of honor of being human, a desert, a dessert reminder of occasional non-apocalyptic failure, and enveloped in face mask, eye mask, blanket, darkness cocooned in coma-induced sleep, optional layers of headphones and seat-back movie screen, flying, shaking, shaky, shaky, flyy, turbulence, adding an extra dimension to T. Cruz's maverick dogfights, all bundled up in two layers of marrow depth sound, machines maniacal roar, airs atoms splitting, whoosh. And on the edge of Audible are Sisters of Mercy in-flight personnel gleefully gossip about us in the back. Lights dimmed, rambling thoughts on the name Paganini. Paganini. Don't think too deeply unless prepared to weep silently in the dark. Sleep and movie both, they cloister us from clashing realities. What we have left behind and what we have yet to face. Buried neath sand. Uh, buried neath sand, nudges of time. A knee moves, then a finger. Crystalline particles undulate. Time undulates. Rushing forward, yet I am air suspended. This flight, my waiting room. My cigar tube in the sky, my airlock my reacclimatization chamber between worlds. At an interim, interior interim of stopover, we find ourselves admiring my husband's blue button remnants, still beaming its very brightness amidst the light and polish of Doha's million shiny surfaces. <laughs> That's great. Well, I was going back and forth because I, I had a chance to go to a, a conference in, in London recently and i was in the, the flights are actually cheap from lax to london and so i was thinking about it and then i realized that it's like 13 hours on a plane and i decided not to 
And so for part of the poem, I was thinking, good decision, Tim. And then at the end, you kind of cheered me up a little bit. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, I'm still still mixed about that long plane flights, um, but glad somebody does them. Um, <laughs> and so so then a really short poem to end on. What, what's this last one? Yes. So this one, um, this was written a few years ago mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, so I really, really appreciated that interview because also um, how – uh, poets help us face the things we need to face mm-hmm. when yeah. we prefer not to face them. So this is very much reflects the political situation in the Philippines uh, a few five years ago, but also today. Mm-hmm. It's called The City Burns. Pondering the actor with his brilliance, enticing me into ecstasies of morbid, morbid intrigue, evil as entertainment, as evil reigns. Weeping and hysteria tumble me downstream, heartbreak and madness, the horror of missing the brain-stoppingly obvious, forgotten child, abandoned parent, scraping the fiddle while the city burns. Ah, yeah, great political poem there. Thanks very much for sharing that. And, and joining us, I think the first time you've been on, I believe, Anne, right? Yeah. Yes, well, first I hope time. You come back, and it's great to see uh, Sun Make sure we can see yes. that, that sun out the window, which none sun. of us in the United States are getting right now. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, hope you do again. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Uh, that was Anne Van Widgerden with uh, three poems there. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those. Let's go next to, um, let's go to Guy Chambers. <clears throat> Hi, Tim. Hey, Guy. How are you doing today? Oh, really good today. Like, I'm gonna, I didn't have a prom poem. I really liked the prompt, but I was so busy with other things. But I just want to announce that uh, these two poems I got here, I hope I can read them both, mm-hmm. is I got published in a book. It just came out. Can I show it online? Yeah. Yeah, sh- yeah just hold it up. Yeah, go ahead. Just this one here is out of uh, Calgary, Alberta. Here, hold it up one more time because I, I didn't get the screen big enough fast enough. There you go. Oh, the Prairie Journal. Okay. Yeah, and then, and uh, mm-hmm. I've been publishing there before a few years back, and but I decided to switch over trying to get other magazines mm-hmm. get published in there, and uh, I just got they just send that out just now. I just got published, and uh, they've been going for quite a few years, and and that too. So, and this first poem is called Sunday, and I, it's about it's it's part of life. You know, mm-hmm. everybody goes through this part of this life, and this is about an older couple. You know they go. They you know they. It's too bad they have to go through this, but they do. And uh, so I call this Sunday. A gentleman, as another Sunday afternoon begins, in a stale room, absent of perfume, staring out a broken window, as a sunny day glow, there by a dresser, and inside the dresser drawer. That's where the Bible is stored. Quiet and shy, watching the the sky go by with a sigh. All spruced up, all the nevertheless in his Sunday's best. Black tie and tail, threads so detailed, always the same as before. Grips his cane that holds his pain. Heads out of the gloom of the apartment room. That's popcorn rent, which much time is spent. Here's a radio in a hallway echo, stepping down the stairs that creaks. The lighting so bleak, opens outside door so antique. 
with irritating squeaks. Heads down the street, slow steps in his feet to his Sunday's restaurant where he's been going for so long. A table for two, that has to do, that looks down the avenue. Lays down his nickels and dimes, what he's done for some time. To order a, a dish, a soup and fish for two. At their belly full, he heads out the door and goes down the avenue to pick up a special flower so colorful from his favorite flower shop. They're so delightful just for him on every Sunday. With his spirit, Will goes up to the hill to God's green acres, way down the avenue, sits on a bench, across from a headstone, sitting, sitting there all alone, all alone. The name on the headstone calls to mind, the whispers so fine, fingertips touch so in much, hugs forevermore, snugs forevermore, speeches nevertheless, for many words have been already been spoken. Love is so hard when you give yourself away, but still being there, still being there. A deep smile keeps a while. He lays the flowers down as many times before besides the headstone, knowing he's not alone. A tear comes to his eyes. Thank you for that one. Yeah, if that was too long, it's okay. Yeah, because people keep coming in. So uh, I think when I said it was a light open lines, we had six, now we have 12. So I think we're yeah. going to switch back to one poem apiece. And, yeah. uh, but thanks so much for sharing that, Guy. That was uh, okay, thank you very a wonderful much. poem. Yeah, Sunday by yeah. Guy Chambers. Thanks so much, Guy. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, thanks, Guy. And then next up, let's go to, um, let's go to Kashiana Singh. Jim, can you hear me? I can. How are you doing tonight, Kashiana? I'm doing well. Um, thank you for having Joan. She is the most beautiful poet I've read and read and heard in in the recent past. So thank you for having her. Yeah, yeah, definitely our pleasure. Very beautiful book, very moving. Very moving. Uh, if you haven't, and for anybody else who's listening, uh, How to Make Pancakes for a Dead Boy, the chapbook she mentioned, that's mm -hmm. beautiful as well. So if you if you would like, you should you should read that. Yeah, yeah, people should, for sure. Uh, let me know when you're ready. The poem I'm going to read, it's not a prompt poem, Tim, but it's inspired by um, Joan's work. Mm -hmm. um, it was written many years ago, and it's from my first collection, Shelling Peanuts and Stringing Words. Uh -huh. uh, but I always like to read it, sometimes with Joan, definitely following her. Oh, that's great. Well, yeah, I'm glad you can. Is it a checklist, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, go ahead whenever you're ready. I have it. Okay. Checklists. Advanced planning services for funerals blinked the signboard as if apologizing for its own presence Casket and flowers, check. Obituary and a tombstone, check. 
Wine and music? Check. Prayers and a rabbi? Check. A guest book? Maybe. Photographs beyond budget. I walked in, the ghostly white lady at the front desk smiled, skirting my glance. Do you have a survivor's guide? Does it explain the process of saying the last goodbye? Have a coaching class for someone who has not been able to bid goodbye? At least not in an authentic, honest way. She looked at me and said, sorry. I walked out and back beyond the blinking lights. Is there even a need to say goodbye? As for the funeral code of conduct, is the survivor's checklist violated if one chooses not to? I don't think I ever will. There are no goodbyes when you love someone within your ribcage. It does not matter. Adios means till we meet again. Yeah, checklists. Yeah, thanks so much, Kashyana. That was Checklists by Kashyana saying, great to have you on. Thanks so much for sharing that poem. Thank you, Tim. Yeah. Take care. Yep, Bye-bye. It was Kashyana saying, and Kashyana had an episode of the Rattlecast, maybe, God, it's so hard to remember these days, after doing this for three and a half, I guess, years. I think it was like two years ago, maybe, or maybe it was just last year. I'm not sure. But uh, but look back and find Kashyana's episode. It was a great one. Um, let's go to uh, Mike Bales next. Uh, I just have one poem, so it's going to work now. I, yeah, excellent. <laughs> it's a prompt poem that I sent you last night. Mm-hmm. Um I was picking my hills, and the easiest thing to write about were the hills in southwest Wisconsin. We've got the Driftless region, mm-hmm. which is an area untouched by glaciers, but debris is dumped that form the hills in oh, southwest that's... Wisconsin, northwest Illinois, mm-hmm. northeast Iowa, southeast Minnesota. And it's about uh, going through the hills of Wisconsin and I was going to and from, or maybe this time going to some work assignment in Wisconsin. And it's called My Dripless Dream. It's a pantoum. The highway going north from spring green winds its way through hills as the new journey begins. From spring green, a collage of forests and fields as the journey begins. A sigh, I will die in these hills. A collage of forests and fields, untold beauty at every turn. A sigh, I will die in these hills, my driftless dream. Untold beauty at every turn, untouched by glacial ice, my driftless dream, a passage in Wisconsin. Untouched by glacial ice, the story of the land unfolds, a passage in Wisconsin where my high, where my heart finds a home. Excellent. Yeah, that was great, Mike. I always love that form, the repetitions in that. Uh, really well done, My Driftless Dream by Mike Bass. Thanks, Mike. Okay, thanks. Yep, take care. Um, next up is Carla Schwartz. Hello. Hey, Carla, how are you doing tonight? Doing well, thank you. Thank you. I sent you a few poems, but um, one of them was just the, a prompt poem that I only just was able to type up tonight. But um, I will do the one... Um, I actually wrote a poem called Night Swim, which I have not read in a million years, from a book that I wrote, which is called um, Mother, One More Thing, which I did right after my mother passed away. Mm-hmm. And um, that was 2014 uh, Turning Point Books. And um, 
And so uh, I'm going to read this poem, uh, which is not sad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, just so okay. you know. Night swim. Let me just get it down here. Hang on. So. After a day's work at the home office, after packing the car with camping gear, after the long drive slowed by traffic, after pulling into the campground and snagging the last spot on the pond, after the hour it takes to park the car and set up the tent in the darkening light night and the dripping rain, after finally eating what would constitute dinner, four carrots with hummus while seated in the driver's seat of my parked car. After a day of not even stretching, after gathering my swim gear, clothing, and towel, headlamp affixed, I stepped down the steep root-strewn path that must lead to the pond. In the almost dark, the sky drizzles. Before stepping in, I strip and don my goggles, cap and fins. I make a mental note of my entry point and its surroundings. A big secluded rock, a small cove, an opening in the trees. There is no moon. My splashing strokes, the birds, and the constant drip. By the time I'm ready to stop swimming, the sky is clear, the Big Dipper revealed. A Venus peers down at the lone nude swimming in the dark. After I think I'm nearing my entry point, after trying one cove and the next, after every opening in the trees looks like the other, after swimming in and out of each cove, after approaching every big rock twice to find them blocked by dead wood, wrong, grasses, wrong, other stones, wrong, all the while swimming a repetition of coves. After wishing for my glasses and my suit, after considering a cry for help, could I spend the night on a rock or sleep in the shallows? Do the turtles sleep and the fish, or do they nibble all night? Should I swim to a beach and walk out on the road naked without light? I am Venus without her shell, only fins. Would I purse my coy smile if caught yeah, excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was a night swim, of course, and definitely a different direction for taking it. Um, beautiful poem, and uh, yeah, sounds like a great night. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Definitely does. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. That was great. Um, okay, that was Carla Schwartz with Night Swim. Uh, next, let's go to Nate Jacob. Hey there, Tim. Hey, Nate. How you doing tonight? Good to see you. I'm doing okay. That was a great interview today. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, it's a great book. It was. I uh, had to control some tears there for a yeah. while. Uh, yeah. Well, I, uh, I I wrote a prompt poem. Yeah, inspired. I, think, I think this was a tough prompt to do. I'm impressed that so many people are, are giving it a shot. <laughs> I, I had a hard time identifying uh, any 
any rise in the land I was willing to die on. Yeah, yeah, it is tough. Um, I, the soap. <laughs> I, I, yeah, well, here so I if I gotta die, I'll go either either bar or body wash. It's okay. <laughs> Not a bad way to go. <laughs> so I wrote uh, what constitutes. Um, a not very good poem, but here I am. Anyway. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad he could share it. Let's hear it. I will die on this hill. Socks pulled to the correct length up my calves. Soup in the Goldilocks zone, briefly just right. A winter hat that fits well, but doesn't ruin the hairdo. Sunlight through a dusty window pane after a late dinner. Dogs whose tails speak more clearly than their barks. Snow-covered foothills sliding into a red desert valley. The sound of your breath when you know, when I know you're not dreaming. Every single time you've pretended the touch was unintended. The newness of old carpet each time we arrange furniture. The steam on my mirror I, bl I blame for never shaving. Never hearing cyclists refer to their bikes as 10 speeds anymore. The first holiday greeting to arrive always being from your dentist. Being dispossessed of the idea that the French are better kissers. Developing a true love of dark chocolate so you never have to share with the kids. That time when the carpool lane functioned better than even its designers intended. And did I mention the perfectly temperate bowl of soup? Whether a thing matters or not is entirely a matter of perspective. This is a hill I am kind of willing to die on. Uh, that was great. I Will Die on This Hill by Nate Jacob. Very fun. That was the close anyone's gotten so far to a Rick Lupert type <laughs> poem. I appreciate it. Thanks for sharing that, Nate. Glad to be here. Thanks. Yep, take care. And then Nate Jacobs with I Will Die on This Hill. Let's go to Joe Nolan next. Hey, Tim. How you doing? Good. How you doing, Joe? Good. I've just got a short one. Okay. Forever leaves of brown. Trees may bear brown leaves throughout the winter. Some leaves never blow away. They cling from year to year as though fixed. Maybe they are worry mixed with fear, anger, and resentment, and cannot be let go. No matter how hard the wind may blow, Reserving aging places where otherwise fresh green buds would grow. Ah, that was Joseph Nolan with Forever Leaves of Brown. Excellent sounds as always, Joe. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thanks, Tim. Yep, have a good night. Um, next up, uh, Brian O'Sullivan, I think a first-time caller. Hi, yes, I am a first-time caller. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here, Brian. Uh, where are you calling from? <clears throat> uh, from Southern Maryland. Excellent. In Mary's County, Maryland. Uh -huh. and, uh, and what have you got for us? So I sent a prompt poem. Mm -hmm. um, let me pull it up. Sorry, I had it ready to go. I wasn't able to keep my browser up. Well, I had Zoom up. Um, one second. No problem. Okay, here it goes. So this is a poem to the prompt. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very spontaneous poem. Uh, one of the things I'm hoping is that it doesn't offend anyone. It's very spontaneous. Okay. Okay. It's called Doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, the pure men will say, I won't let you be gay. They will say, I said that Christians trump moors, that beautiful things are dangerous lures, that your soul's in their hands, those sacred boors. And they'll even say your body's not yours. I say, love each other and don't listen to them. 
Look here where these forlorn horses bloom. Because of the pure men, I will die on this hill. Ah, excellent. Yeah, thanks so much. It was doctrine. Thanks so much for sharing that, Brian. Yeah, good pump. Thanks so much, and uh, good for you to join us. Hope you can join us again. I will. Yeah, great. Thanks. Uh, Brian O'Sullivan with Doctrine. And uh, next up, we have uh, Angela Gartner. <clears throat> Hi, Tim. Hey, Angela. How are you doing tonight? Good. So no prompt poem mm-hmm. and just a normal poem. Like, I wrote for Poets Respond for a while, but it, it really is just could be like any any day poem. But uh-huh. it's it's maybe one of my funnier poems i'm okay. <laughs> maybe oh my gosh it's not funny like no one's gonna think it's funny now <laughs> That's funny. i shouldn't have said that it's not funny so. okay it's just me being a mom uh-huh. so. yeah well that's an important thing to be i'm glad you are so okay okay the mom melodies little little my sweet child The dishes are piling high. Let's go scrub the spoons. Mommy has to work tomorrow. Little, little, my sweet child. Diapers dirty for a third time this hour. Let's go change and get clean. Hope you don't pee on me. Little, little, my sweet child. Why did Jack sell his cow and trade it for some beans only to walk in the lair of the child eater? Little, little, my sweet child. Tucked you in twice, now go to sleep. Drink a glass of milk, a story to read. Feel cramp in my arm, but keep snuggling. Little, little, my sweet child, mommy has raccoon eyes. Open wide for a yawn, sew in a robe and have my pajamas on. Little, little, my sweet child, I hear you screaming for me. A snack just spilled on the floor. Your sister is touching your toy. Little, little, my sweet child, you will grow up and leave. Your blue dog will be dusty. I will hug it and think of you. Ah, that's both funny and sweet, I would say. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Angela. Thanks. Have a great night. Yep, you too. Thanks. That was the Mom Melodies by Angela Gartner. Um, let's see. Who is left? We got Jennifer Elise Wang here. Hey, hey Tim. Hey, Jen. How you doing? I'm good. Uh, I was working while I was... Uh... Well, you were talking with Joan, but yeah, I'm going to definitely give it a listen because definitely an important topic and yeah, for one sure. that kind of hits home a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, unfortunately, it hits um, home for so many people. It's just such a, yeah. you know, it's a topic that touches so many lives. Yeah. Um, but my poem, I did a prop poem kind of last minute. Uh, I decided instead of actual hills I would die on to uh, provide some culinary hot takes based on just some memes that were spread around about, you know... Uh, like, is this, is this a cake? Is this a pizza? <laughs> like all those things. So uh-huh. it, it wound up being this short little poem that <laughs> I created. Excellent. Let's hear it. So culinary hot takes. A hot dog is a sandwich. A pop tart is a ravioli. A cheesecake is pie. Kale soup is a tea. These are the hills on which I will die. <laughs> That's great. Excellent. Culinary hot takes by Jennifer Lee Swang. Thanks for sharing that, Jen. Thanks. Yep. Good night. All right, so that was Jennifer Lee Wang with Culinary Hot Takes. And um, I think that's going to wrap it up for the uh, the Zoom. Um, so I'm going to shut that down. If, you watch, watch, wants to, if anybody on Zoom wants to keep watching, please do jump over to YouTube. But I'm going to shut this out and read a couple more poems from, um, from poets who emailed poems in. So uh, let's see what we've got here. Because there's a bunch of poems in the inbox that are completely unopened. And I would like to share them all. 
So let's see. <clears throat> Here's a poem by, um, <clears throat> it's a prop poem by um, J.B. Penname, as uh, J.B.'s going by, which is a very fun name. Um, that was the poet who a couple weeks ago was here, and um, I didn't want to um, share a poem without saying who wrote it. And here we go. This is I On This Hill, a melodramatic prompt poem from J.B. Penname is what they decided to go with. And here we go. On This Hill. <clears throat> On This Hill. My mother and aunt talk about a friend whose husband left no will. He didn't believe in writing things down, and now their house is in a state of arbitration. He could have made it out on a cocktail napkin, forensic accountants shrimping over his final horseradish stains. He could have schlepped up the nearest mountain and signed it into a field of clovers. The house goes to my wife. I will die on this hill. When I die, cover me in gold and shoot me into the sun. No, buy ten acres upstate and dig me in, in square across and square across from a cloudless day. Those before me are cemeteries now. It's not uncommon to buy a family plot, all the generations cuddling in the dirt. But what if we run out of room down there? Once I really thought I'd buy us a mausoleum, but why not bury me in the body of an email? I'd like my epitaph read by a corporate pencil pusher scrolling through memos on the toilet between the dells of two coffee breaks. I will die on this hill. I live up the road, loved in that valley over there started my family in this clearing as one does and when i retire it'll be on that mound across the way see that rise that slumps like an old man the knobby one that plummets at the center i will die on that hill excellent i love the <laughs> why not bury me in the body of an email that is a great line in that poem thanks so much for sharing that jb um let's see what else we have um so Nivedita Karthik has one, of course, and I'm going to uh, download her video, and I'll play it in a little bit after it downloads. Um, yeah, because I can't do it like that. I have to download it. Download anyway. Just one second. Okay. So once that downloads, we'll go back to uh, Nivedita, which is always a pleasure. Uh, for now, let's hear what Katie Dozier has a, a rondelle. Uh, and here we go. Sea level rondel. And this is Katie Dozier. Sea level rondel. I will die. On this hill I climb as though a cliff. Search these stones for glyphs. Ants scrounge for free will. Follow pheromones still. Puffing air, broken rifts. I will die on this hill. I climb as though a cliff. Pink sunset. Light distilled. Prod summit dirt. Outlive ants. Kick pebbles, airlift misconceptions, dusk mill, I will die on this hill. Excellent. That's KHD, also known as Katie Dozier, with a rondelle, which is one of those French forms that I can never keep straight. Joan, Joan uh, Quan Glass was talking about that. And um, I don't know the rules for the rondelle. The villanelle I got, the pantoum, I kind of understand, but um, rondelles are a mystery to me. Um, that was excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Katie. Now let's go to Sharon Ferrante. Um, here's her. She has a silly haiku if we have time to read it. Here is uh, the I Will Die on This Hill uh, haiku from Sharon Ferrante. The top of a hill, a Mars bar. I will die on this hill. That's excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Sharon. Um, a pleasure as always. Um, oh, Brent Stauffer. 
the least. You know, Brent Stuffer, I wonder why he's he's never shown up home and not been here. And open up Zoom just in case he pops on. And maybe we'll swing back to Brent if he does. And let's go, uh, now let's go back to uh, Nivedita Karthik, who has this poem for this week. So here's Nivedita Karthik reading The Choice. Hello, my name is Nivedita, and this is my attempt at the prompt poem for Atlacast. So it's titled The Choice. The Choice. The choice is mine to make, and I will die on this hill. Surrounded by wildflowers and long green grass, bright is the smile I used to have. With the raging river by my side, leaping past the rocky obstacles like I used to. In the dappled shade of the other trees that have soft barks just like I used to. With many golden globes of sunlight streaming down on me like my eyes used to light up. But the choice is not mine to make and I did not die on this hill. Instead, I sit amid those wildflowers considering my reasons to smile. With the now dried up river gasping by my side, wondering how to surmount those once easy obstacles beneath the bare branches of the Diodar trees, the peeling barks hard against my back, under the harsh yellow glare of the sun causing me to cover my eyes. So no, none of us have a choice, the choice, for if we did, we would all wish for the same. And this is what I think as I sit on the hill, and I will die on this hill. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Um, yeah, it was Nibidita Karthik with a wonderful poem, The Choice. Um, thanks so much. That was a great, great prompt poem. It was a hard prompt, and uh, people are coming up with good stuff here. Um, so Brent Stauffer, um didn't appear on the Zoom. Let's, let's read Brent's poem, Belief. Here's uh, Brent's firmly held belief. Or firmly held beliefs, I should say. There. Firmly held beliefs by Brent Stauffer. Hot dogs or sandwiches, and I will die on this hill. Tea is water with leaves in it, and I will die on this hill. Chili is chunky soup, and I will die on this hill. Semicolons are beautiful, Oxford commas necessary, punctuation saves lives, and I will die on this hill. Democrats are evil, Republicans are evil, and I will die on this hill. My God is better than your God, and I will die on this hill. Awful hilly around here. Buzzards wheel in the sky, filled with both hunger and joy. Oh, excellent turn at the end. That was great. Thanks so much, uh, Brent. Sorry you couldn't be here to read that live. I knew you'd come up with a good poem for that one. That was a firmly held beliefs by Brent Stoffer from the I Will Die on This Hill prompt. Uh, Clayton Clark's got one, too. Um, and she's uh, a little bit under the weather, so can't read, but would love for us to read this. And I'd love to read it for sure. Here's Clayton Clark's poem, Question for the Almighty. And this is a prompt poem, too. So here we go with this one. Question for the Almighty. I felt him sneak up behind me again, fast this time. I turned, looked him right in the face, a big no-no, but I suffered no fear. He stumbled back, tripped in his sloppy sandals and sat on the floor. The billowy white night shirt he wore made him seem puny. A bush burned in each eye. Hey, I said, why did the chicken cross the road? Wrong question, he replied. Oh, Go ask that clown running downhill on the other side. You mean the hill I will die on? <laughs> That's great. That was Clayton Clark with Question for the Almighty. Uh, the, the Hill I Will Die On poem. 
Um, and I believe, oh, here is another one. Um, this is a, um, uh, this is my first haiku poem. This is um, um, Biswajit uh, Mishra. And um, um, Biswajit says, uh, here's my first haiku poem, three frames and a picture for the Rattlecat, Rattlecast. Um, hope this complies with the requirements of the last line, I will die in this hill. So here we go, three frames and a picture. One, snow shrouds the mountain peaks waiting for Chinook to break the frigidity, fireplace, wine, and movie help. Two, Christmas lights sparkle all night. Holiday fervor is getting on the anvil while days are getting shorter. Three, dark quiet nights linger long. Hopefully the snow brightens up the moonlight and magpies chatter start sunny mornings. Picture lost in reverie on Sunday. Dodging grocery shopping, getting hot brunch, and I will die on this hill. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was uh, three frames in a picture. An interesting, really interesting form, too. Three frames in a picture. I haven't seen that before. I like it. And um, that was um, Biswajit uh, Mishra. Thanks so much for sharing that. Okay, that, I believe, is the last poem for tonight. Um, let's go... With, uh, oh yeah, you know what, I forgot to read the uh, yesterday's prompt poem, because Andrew wasn't here. He's, uh, Andrew Posner was the Sunday poet for Poets Respond, and um, he was on a plane flight um, all night tonight, so he wasn't able to make it, and um, hopefully there are a few Chinese names, um, hopefully I'll say them all right, but I don't know if I will apologize in advance if I don't, but um, this is Blank by Andrew Posner, yesterday's uh, Poets Respond poem, and I'll read Andrew's note to start. Um, Andrew writes, um, I'm watching the blank paper protests in China from the comfort of my home, wondering how I would react were I living under such an authoritarian regime. Then again, the authoritarian streak in America is ever looming. So perhaps the question of my response to such circumstances is not so moot. Uh, that is Andrew Posner's comment on this poem, blank, which was uh, Sunday's Poets Respond poem and the, the epigram or epigraph from Newsweek. Uh, blank sheets of white paper were a symbol of defiance over the weekend as Chinese protesters braved likely prosecution to openly oppose the government's policy of zero tolerance for COVID and public dissent. That was the, uh, the epigraph, and here is Andrew Posner's poem, Blank. I will stare blankly at the page, wanting to fill it with meaning. In Xinjiang, 7,000 miles away, a morning sun reflecting off the glasses of early risers, the windshields of commuters, is so bright as to redact last night's graffiti down with chi. The people smiling, the wry smile of the long aggrieved, hold up blank pages and say nothing. While everywhere, censors, police, apparatchiks, always listening, watching, fill page after page with names, addresses, offenses. Zhang Wei disrespected the party. Li Nai seeks to sabotage the social order. In Los Angeles, I am busy besmirching the page, smearing it with ink, as though covering the purest snow in de-icing salt. The snow melts down to mud. Poetry reduces to a mush of guttural sounds incomprehensible to the moment. Heaving a sigh, I make a double espresso, add a splash of cream and sugar, savor each peaceful sip. Outside, a hawk, saying nothing, carries off a rabbit in its talons. Is this the natural order of things? For once, I hear the tearing of flesh, see the sky torn blood red. No one will apprehend me here, cup in hand, crumpled paper on the floor, blank visage, belying the seeds of treason. 
But were they to try, which treason would I admit, and which would I deny? That was yesterday's prompt poem, a very important topic of what's going on in China right now. That was Blank by Andrew Posner. One of those poems that I didn't really know what was going on there. Um, I've been a little bit oblivious, a very busy week. I didn't, uh, didn't watch the news as much and didn't realize how, uh, how significant the events that are going on there are. That was Blank by Andrew Posner. Thanks for sharing that. And um, that's going to wrap up the show except for the haiku or saiku. And the saiku for this week was inspired by this story from MIT. Let me pull it up. This is, um, Silent synapses are abundant in the adult brain. These immature connections may explain how the adult brain is able to form new memories and absorb new information. And so basically they looked at the synapses inside mice and a long time ago realized that young mice have a ton of these unused silent synapses, they're called. And they assume they turn on as you learn new memories and learn things. And, and, uh, but the thought in uh, neuroscience was that as adults, we don't have many of these at all. And uh, we're kind of filled up already. And uh, what they found by accident were that these, um, there are many millions of silent synapses um, in our brains now, which are helping form memories even now. So, you know, you don't want to have to overwrite your old uh, neurons to make new memories. You want to keep your old memories while making new ones too. And uh, it turns out that this is how we do it. We have a whole bunch that are just, uh, <laughs> just silent and uh, ready to turn on when we need to form a memory. And so in an interesting way, it's kind of like your brain could get full in theory if you run out of these silent synapses possibly. But that is the, uh, the story which caught my eye this week from MIT. And here is the Saiku inspired by it. Memories on top of memories, smoothing stone. Memories on top of memories, smoothing stone. That is your Saiku for the day, and that is your show for the day. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. It's been a pleasure, as always. Really wonderful guest tonight um, with Joan Quan Glass. And Joan has a prompt for us. So here is the prompt uh, right here. Victoria Chang radically changes the way in which we regard obituaries by writing an entire poetry collection using obits as a form. I think it's called obits, right? Or just obit? Um, but here is uh, write an obituary for one of the following a previous version of yourself a friendship or romantic relationship a body part your adult child's childhood or for someone who has not died but that you've lost and uh, she included a link to one of uh, Eugenia Lee's poems who we talked about and was on Rattlecast 68 or whatever we said Um, and uh, Eugenia's poem is one year after my dying father and I stopped speaking to each other again and that is um a poem to inspire you by by Eugene and Lee. I'll post the link to that um, in the show notes later on once I post the uh, prompt. You can also find it at rattle.com slash rattlecast. Like you can always find the weekly prompts. Hope you write a poem about that and uh, hope you share it next week on the open lines. And next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be um, Elaine Sexton. And Elaine was in the um, um, Appalachian Poets issue. Her newest book, Drive, has I think it was one of the poetry bestsellers of the year this year. Um, and um, I'm looking forward to it. I don't know a whole bunch. We published Elaine once, I believe. Um, so it's one of those fun-for-me poets where I get to meet a totally new poet that I have no idea really much about at all. It's going to be a lot of fun. Her book is Drive. Really looking forward to reading that. Looking forward to uh, hearing your prompt poems, too. That is next week, Rattlecast number 172, uh, Monday, December 12th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night. Good night.